From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's December 23rd, 2015. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. On this week's episode, we're featuring two highlights from our recent series of year-end screenings, co-presented by The Hollywood Reporter. First, we'll go to a conversation with Alejandro Inyaritu, who joined screenwriter Mark L. Smith and producer Mary Parent to talk about their new film, The Revenant, which opens on Christmas Day. After that, we'll go to a lively discussion about one of this summer's most talked about films, Straight Outta Compton. After a special screening of the film in our Walter Reed Theater, the Film Society's deputy director, Eugene Hernandez, joined director F. Gary Gray, Ice Cube, and O'Shea Jackson Jr. to discuss the film, which became one of the runaway box office hits of the summer. But before that, we wanted to tell you about another podcast produced here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Film Comment podcast features discussions with critics about recent releases and notable classics. Most recently, digital editor Violet Luca joined senior editor Nicholas Rapold and critics Amy Taubin and Nick Pinkerton to discuss the magazine's picks for the best films of 2015. Let's go to a short excerpt from that conversation. And for the entire discussion, subscribe to the Film Comment Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. I mean, Arabian Nights, uh, to my mind, is clearly just an extraordinary piece of work and one that I've had a terrific... I, I, I love how it's constantly sort of undoing itself, frustrating itself, the somewhat baffling illogic behind the sequencing of it uh well it's also in the the third one the the geography gets completely messed up where it's like bahia and the middle east like even where it's it's geography is so funny it's history is complete bupkis yeah Uh, at one point it refers to the years when Baghdad was a coastal city. Yes. <laughs> which point of fact, it never was. Um, a couple million years ago, it was. Yeah. <laughs> a coastal city that drew many Portuguese uh, immigrants at one point. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, all of all of these little larks and chaffinches uh, are tremendously pleasurable to me, and the degree to which he does not repeat to my mind the considerable successes of taboo but in many ways is working against his own talent Mm -hmm. in ways that are sometimes as i say frustrating but always i think creatively fruitful makes it such a rich and pleasurable work for me uh so much more so than something that is very elegantly done but basically inert uh like for example, number eight, Phoenix. Um, so Arabian Nights is uh, a movie very, I don't know, calculated to uh, give me give me pleasure, even though it does rub one the wrong way at times and seems very deliberately to be sort of working with one hand behind, it, behind its back. So you want to see a sequel, basically. Well, <laughs> I mean, my, my one complaint is it, as it's as it's structured or fails to be structured, it almost seems like it should just be open ended and continue in perpetuity. Yeah. It sort of lends itself to that. And I mean, Gomez is good as said, the structure <laughs> the structure is determined by the money running out. Yeah, this is where I wish I had video. <laughs> Care to comment? It's totally baffling, and I would just 
say what James Quant said in his 10 best list on art form, where clearly he put it in number 10, but only one scene from it. So he could say that it was the most ridiculously overrated movie of the year. I think it's terrible. I think it's <laughs> condescending. I think it's careless. I think it's like this guy woke up one day and said, oh, people are poor in Portugal. How will I ever make a movie that isn't really like a documentary because no one goes to see documentaries about poor people, so I'll make it fanciful. Oh, what kind of story really wowed people? The Arabian Nights. I just think this is the most shallow, ugly, stupid movie. Uh, and clearly, if there weren't a cult around this director, it would have vanished in one minute. So, Did, Were you similarly allergic to the Our Beloved Month of August? I like Our Beloved Month of August. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's great, but I like it, and I like Taboo, yeah. you know? Um, but this was... Too rambly. Too there was nothing on the screen. I don't, I don't know how a movie that has been seen by maybe a few thousand people at best can be the most overrated movie of the year. Well, it's surprising. Well, because you're sitting here and overrating it, and it gets on 10 best lists, and yeah. look where it is on this list. Yeah. <laughs> and many people voted in this poll, yeah. and I presume you didn't all sit around like in the movie election and... Toss away or uh, in carry and and line up the votes the way you wanted them. We, we, we are not officially audited, but we hold ourselves to the high standards of Price Waterhouse or whatever. Well, time will vindicate me, but. <laughs> time will make fools of us That's all, hard. I think. Uh, when he makes the next one, you'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were speaking of earlier about. Um, extremes given recent events in the world I, or I started thinking about this but is there a point to you know sort of pushing let's say violence to the extreme we don't have any real gore fests on here do we? well I mean Mad Max is a is a, gore a rather fest. unpleasant stoning in Timbuktu yeah somehow uh, love didn't make the list there I confess to yeah cooking the numbers there, <laughs> it actually was number two so <laughs> thought it'd look weird um, well I mean I don't know if we want to wade into the uh, son of soul but that's the, I mean the violence is kept off screen I guess but that would be the most violent movie <laughs> yeah but I mean say more I mean is it is it Nemes is reacting to He's reacting to the way Holocaust films have been shot in the past. He's also coming from a very high pedigree, let's say, from Belatar. I mean, you I know you quite like the film. I like it. I mean, I don't know if I qu quite like it. I mean, there are clear problems with, with like, I don't know. I, I agree with the objections about how, like, it's like the, the, the camp is designed for a camera crew to cover every area in it um, in the allotted time. And, and then... There's something a little uh, too, um, um, I don't know, uh, pat about the, uh, you know, his search. Um, I, I think he didn't think as much through the screenplay as he did through everything else. Mm. Um, but I, I do, I, I mean, I guess I do, um, I mean, one thing that I, 
I, I admire about it is I think it, if we think about it like a labor theory of value, I think it makes it difficult. <laughs> what wasn't always difficult to watch. Mm. Um, and uh, in a way that's different, um, not different from previous films because other films have this style. Um, but I think he did more than just take a, I don't know, <laughs> take a Darden tag along and, you know, never move outside of his frame and apply it to the subject matter. I think, uh, I think the thought that went into it is that it's restoring a certain difficulty to apprehending everything, yeah. uh, which is the illusion a lot of movies uh, give you. Um, but by no means a perfect film, far from it, I think. Well, I mean, as we're talking about uh, these sort of subjective dunk movies, <laughs> I would uh, like to say a few words for the superlative Hard to Be a God, which yes. I'm a little baffled to find uh, not having cracked the upper ranks because it seems to me just a self-evidently major piece of work. And I think it was received as such, I mean, odd as it is for a movie that's on the plus side of three hours is more or less narratively incomprehensible. <laughs> Extremely gross. Extremely <laughs> gross, swimming in viscera, snot rockets, and <laughs> muck. Uh, it it packed them in. For <laughs> <laughs> the thousands of the several the few thousand people that yeah. care, and uh, couldn't get enough. <laughs> you know, now in the I don't know, we're in the twentieth year of the death of cinema or something like that. But this was something that seemed to be recognized as whatever that means a uniquely cinematic experience, and part of it maybe is that endurance test quality that yeah. it has. The fact that. You know, one can't pause it and go make a sandwich. Uh, I did. I watched it at home. I totally cheated. <laughs> I rewatched re at home because it's, it, I mean, this is one of the cases where I found the the writing around the movie very far removed from the actual experience <laughs> of watching the movie. No, everyone like looked on Wikipedia Yeah, everybody or just hit the press kits. It's completely. total cheat, total yeah, cheat. You're, like, you're telling me you had any idea what was going on <laughs> <laughs> through this movie. And I mean, I think that could be applied uh, to some degree to the assassin as well. Like, But I think this, uh, um, I mean, when if you see the assassin once and you see it again, and you, by the third time, the story is really simple. And I don't think that's only because someone who is Chinese sat down and said, oh, this is a classic story from the Tang Dynasty, and it's very simple. Um, I think that the movie becomes clear. It's just that you're so wowed by wanting to look at it that you basically don't want to keep track of who's the woman in the mask. I, and, <laughs> I, have, I have that experience. Yeah. <laughs> that's always the... The bittersweet part of uh, working for Film Comet for me is, you know, getting all this news from Cannes and a lot of movies that I would prefer to know nothing about. Right. And like with The Assassin, that's a film where it's like if you go into it even knowing sort of what it's about, your experience is completely different than someone who's like, oh, so it's about the woman. Even the sense that it's about the woman in the mask, you know, like it's it's just such a it's such a sensor. It's a real sensory experience and it really questions plot you know it's like they're not plot developments they're clues or even it's like well what does this even have to do with this and you know or you could just surrender yourself to it and just be like i'm experiencing this thing this extremely beautiful thing shuki said this wonderful thing at Cannes in the press conference 
Um, she said, because someone asked if the movie was largely her, her character's point of view, and she said, no more so than the trees <laughs> or the clouds or yeah. the mist, because they've seen it all. When she does face off against the other woman in the mask, yeah. there's this great shot where they see each other, and then it cuts to maybe like a 30 second shot of the sun against the sky, and there are these birch trees, and it's like the nature is really austere, and then they're so austere but also wild that they're you know they're they're are you know they're a royal court fighting amongst each other in this really clumsy, brutal, brutish way. But I had I hadn't realized because I don't watch. It's been a long time since I've been watching Chinese sword fighting movies or ghost stories, yeah. and this is ghost story too. Yeah. Um, but what is the one we showed in the film festival? The great classic. Oh, Touch uh, of Zen. Touch of Zen, and the beginning of Touch of Zen is exactly like the beginning of The Assassin. It's just that Touch of Zen is shot in this very kind of bald, straightforward way. But what happens, the setup for the movie is exactly the same. So I think this is much more a genre movie than we can see it as. Yeah. You know, I, I think the genre underpinnings of this movie in terms of its structure are yeah. very strong. Yeah. Well, I mean, one big point that was made in the, in the interview uh, we ran was, um, yeah, that I mean, it's it's it rests upon like hundreds of years of stories <laughs> like this. So it's 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 always kind of funny that yeah, coming to it without having that, it, you know, it, you don't know that tradition. Well, mm. here's a an interesting point when digging around for trends is that you have a top three which you can say really are all movies that if not straight no chaser genre pieces, and Mad Max Fury Road is nothing if not that are very tied to genre traditions. Carol, melodrama, of course, assassin, the wuxia sword fighting picture. And that, I would imagine, is a somewhat unusual circumstance. Hi there, this is Alison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The holidays are almost here. If you got a film lover in your life, Film Society memberships and merchandise make perfect gifts. Memberships start at just $75 and offer discounted tickets, early access to select series and festivals, and complimentary offers year-round. For more information, visit filmlink.org membership. We've also got tons of great gift options on our online store, like Film Society gift certificates, Film Comment magazine subscriptions, and t-shirts and tote bags for fans of Fassbender, Suzuki, John Waters, and more. Check out all the options at filmlink.org slash shop. The Revenant is Alejandro Iñárritu's ambitious follow-up to last year's Oscar Best Picture winner, Birdman. The film stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Hugh Glass, a frontiersman who must find his way home through oppressive terrain after being left for dead by a group of fellow trappers. Brian Tellerico writes for RogerEbert.com, You don't just watch The Revenant, you experience it. It hangs in the back of your mind like the best classic parables of man versus nature. It will stay there for quite some time. After our recent preview screening of the film, Alejandro Iñárritu, screenwriter Mark L. Smith, and producer Mary Parent joined Kent Jones to discuss the film. So let's go now to that conversation. I don't even know where to, I have so many questions, I wouldn't have, <laughs> I don't even know where to start, but I'm going to start by asking 
what seems like a basic question, which is, did the desire, you, we were just talking outside and you were saying that this really started for you four years ago. Five. Five years ago, okay. Did the, was it the story that um, started your drive to make this film or was it the desire to shoot in far-flung places because people don't do that very much anymore and um, that is not, it's not just, you know, nice places to look at, it's central to what the movie is and uh, so that's my first question. Thank you. Well, thank you very much everybody to be here tonight. We're very happy, excited and thank you Kent for having us. Uh, I, I, I thank you very much. We have just finished last week, so we are like flash still. <laughs> um, well, I have to say that uh, the first thing that happened to me is I read uh, a first draft that uh, Mark did, and I read it, and I, it was something that I have never attempted, and it was a, a challenge in many levels, but uh, what it was in the page uh, uh, that Mark did was something that it was, in a way, very straightforward, uh, a, a powerful story and an anecdote that in a way was very simple, I will say, very very primitive, that come from a very primitive, almost biblical kind of thing. And it was an exploration of, of this man who actually was attacked by a grizzly and abandoned and, and all the, 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 the suffering he went through. So <clears throat> I think thematically I felt attracted of the questions that was in the, in the spaces in the spaces between the, 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 the things that he did, um, what happened. And, and it was that um, um, improbability of he succeed that, in a way, for me as a filmmaker, I always said that the duty of a filmmaker is to do probable the improbable. And I said, well, how we can make probable this improbable act of this guy? And um, so the way... Um, that the story was so clear and so straightforward that no way that nobody can cannot empathize with that and understand with that was the first thing that brought me there. And then obviously during the whole five years was how to make it and, and what happened between in the spaces and in the silence in nature. So that was my first reaction, I will say. The opportunity to explore this in a very cinematic way, you know. I just want to say that I can picture other people wanting to make the story, but in a very different way that would, would have been a lot cushier, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> a lot easier. Yes, I, I think that, you know, in, in a sense, <clears throat> I always feel that the anecdote itself, in a way, can be very pedestrian, you know what I mean? But at the same time, I think there, there was the opportunity to, to bring so many, as soon as I start reading of the context that this happened, which is 1823, which is a, a, a year or a part in, in the story of the United States that hasn't been explored in cinema too, too deep, I will say. When I read all what was happening at that time, um, I felt that there was a possibility to contextualize this in a much better, in a way, in a better way that has been told, and at the same time to bring some spiritual dimension to a man who goes through that, and not only as the hero or the frontier man or this macho thing or this revenge kind of thing, I think was an opportunity to, to go to deeper thought, things to, 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 to explore. You know, just to, to, to give you a little bit things that impressed me a lot that I didn't knew before this project, but in this time, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte has just sold... Uh, 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 Louisiana and a lot of a lot of part of the land of United States. Mexico has just finished the the, the the independence from Spain two years before this. So there was full of a lot of Mexicans, a lot of Spanish, a lot of French people, a lot of English people, French Canadian, English Canadian, 
hundreds of tribes. No law, nobody has crossed the United States, only Lewis and Clark 20 years before. So it was literally an unknown territory. It was a, it was a jungle with no law. And, 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 and the biggest income in the United States at that time was the pelts, was the animal pelts. That was the biggest, before the oil, before the, uh, the, 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 the gold. The West didn't exist, that's why this is not a Western. This is when, before the West exists, actually, and, or was discovered, I would say. So what I'm saying is, this uh, context uh, and how wild it was and how these corporations, let's say, is the beginning of the forts getting these uh, young men, you know, runaways and, 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 and very poor people, uh, uh, illiterate guys that went there just to get something to leave, were exploited, they had to sign their lives, killing every animal, uh, broken every promise to the tribes and, and cutting, the, you know, the trees and using nature as we are doing it now. So I thought this is a very resonant of what we are doing. This is the starting of the, the, re the regulate capitalism that we are living is exactly where that born that vision of no have any compromise with any community, any vision, just like the, the greed of that. So I thought this is a very interesting uh, period of time that hasn't been portrayed because the guys who wrote about these men romanticized the idea of how brave and how, but it's not true. So the, the true, when you read, there's a very beautiful book of, 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 of a guy uh, uh, that is called Here uh, Lies Hugh Glass. T. Coleman, and he has an incredible analysis of the story at that time. That really got me a lot, you know. So, Mark, your adaptation, your, your script is an adaptation of the novel, correct? But did you depart from it? I would imagine. Yeah, have... we, I really, it's, it's funny, I, I liked, I enjoyed the book, yeah. loved it, but Hugh Glass was always um, almost a Paul Bunyan-esque figure right. kind of there was as much legend as fact right. to this right. so i started i kept the i kept the bear attack yeah and kept the names yeah um and then i just kind of winged it yeah and i, I just went and um and just kind of put him on this journey and yeah. and it was funny when when alejandro came on what we immediately bonded over was we never saw this as a we, we didn't want to make a revenge story yeah. That wasn't, that was the last thing we wanted. It was, it was really about someone overcoming, you yeah. know, just, and, you know, these obstacles, to, you know, and because we both felt that revenge is very empty. Revenge is, you know, it's, it's kind of a journey without a reward. Yeah. And so we were trying to, to explore that. And so, like, as Alejandro said, I'd kind of built the base. It was almost, in some ways, like a, a two-story house and and I built the the foundation and the path and the journey that that glass went on and, and those things and then Alejandro came in and he he added these amazing emotions and themes mm -hmm. and and things that that he drew from actually from personal experience that I couldn't have gotten you know we changed you know we we butted heads and argued over things that you know but he brought in these just beautiful beautiful themes mm -hmm. that um that I couldn't have provided on my own. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so it was like I, the two-story the two story house and I had that kind of structure and then he got the, the marble floors and all the pretty windows and all he's, that. He's humble, but I have to say that Mark did something very difficult and very, but not, not, not everybody do, which uh, somebody, uh, François Truffaut, who you know very well, he said that he had something to say about adaptation and, and Truffaut said something that I really true that is, very important. He, 
François Truffaut said, the, uh, an honest adaptation is betrayal. And, and, and Mark did, did that very well. You know, that novel that he was made, yeah, he betrayed betray. to make yeah, it cinematic. Yes, and he betrayed, and that's what, you, you follow the Truffaut rule, which yeah. I, I think is wise. <laughs> and it I didn't difficult. even know the quote, so it was just pure luck. Yeah, yeah. yeah you have to violate the source in order to yeah. bring the movie alive. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, the emotion that you're speaking of is really so, is, is felt in the movie so powerfully in the relationship of the people to the locations that they're in, to the places in the specific terrain. And I know that this movie was shot in a lot of different places. And so I'm wondering how those places were coordinated, what you were looking for in each of the locations. For instance, I know some of it was shot down at the bottom of the world. Um, the bulk of it was shot at the top of the world, but in very different places that were kind of far from each other. So maybe you and Mary could actually Talk about that, what you were looking for, and then how that was all coordinated, because that's, that's a massive undertaking in and of itself. Well, Alejandro should speak to what exactly he was looking for. I mean, um, how we ended up in Ushuaia is, is another story. You know, weather was um, a real challenge for us, and we actually ran out of snow. Um, and uh, that was, a, that was a, a tough time having to tell the actors, you've got to keep your beards, you know, we'll call you, you know, we'll let you know <laughs> when, we, when we find the location. And we started this uh, search around the globe. We had to shoot it um, in the summer, so that narrowed it down, because there's only a few places around the world where obviously you can find snow in the summer. And we got really, really lucky and found um, Ushuaia, Argentina. It was a little nerve-wracking, though, because all the Tierra del Fuego. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. beautiful. But these yeah. photos would come in and be like, oh, gosh, put him in front of Alejandro. And you kind of knew, like, okay, this isn't going to fly, but let's just, you know, see. And it was like, no, 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 no. And then, of course, the one perfect place. We got very lucky. And it was an incredible uh, group of people and crew down there yeah. that supported us in finishing the film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just to add something, the first location of scouting I did it five years ago, and some of those locations survive. Uh, after the, you know the, the, the project was um, was coming together, then Leo got uh, 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 you know the green lead in the in the project with with Marty, which is uh, the, the Wolf of Wall Street. So that was something that he was pursuing for five years. So he jumped in, and he asked me, "What about if we shot it?" After I shot the Marty film, and we start in December instead of September, and I said, "We can't because." There's a narrative in, I knew that the locations were a character and they were not informing just the, obviously the, the geographical movement of this character, but the state of mind of this character. This always has to start in autumn, go into the winter and then finish in the winter. That's kind of, the, the, the weather was helping us to, to, to the dramatic state of the, of the film. So it, there was no choice. So I said, no, I can't. So that collapsed. Then I wrote Birdman. I did Birdman in the middle, and then when I was mixing Birdman, this came again. And yeah, that I little was film Birdman that you did in the middle <laughs> was sort of a but but thankfully because it, it informed me about how to shoot this film better, or I learned some things. So so then we returned, and we did an ex exhaustive. You know, really the locations were one of the toughest things because there's like 100 locations, and each one of the it can be maybe from 20 miles to 100 miles in distance. So you said a creek, but a creek maybe is consisting 40 miles and to the access to all that. And I got very, I mean, I want these to 
production-wise, was very difficult decisions for, for all the producers, for Mary, who supported incredibly, and the studio that I have to credit a lot because, you know, some people said, well, a, a, a tree is a tree, a park is a park. And I want this to, f we were shooting this in 14 millimeters lenses, almost all the things. So we were looking 180 degrees all the time. So they have to be locations that you really felt that. So the logistics to choose them in the right direction of light, knowing that we will just shoot with natural light because there was no other way to. And uh, the logistic of it was absolutely madness. Honestly, I, we have to say that during shooting, we were scouting locations in the early morning, then arrive to the set, rehearse, shoot, next morning go to location scouting because we were run away and obviously every time that we choose a location, when we arrive, it changed. Yeah. So we choose a location three months before and then suddenly the axis was not, yeah. there was a flood, the snow was not there, there was a tree that collapsed that road. I mean, every time we have to be dealing with that and that's a war that you never win, you adapt or you die. So it was a challenge, it was a challenge. I just, it just makes my head spin. Um, yeah, because every single moment of the movie, you feel the presence of the locations, and that's, you know, because you're picking, you know, every single corner of it looks like you've got exactly what you want. And I have to credit to, uh, the, I have two people to credit very much. One is Robin Mousy, which was a Canadian guy who was an incredible guy with great taste and always put production upside down. They hate him, but I love him because he always his location was two hours from the hotel, but they were the best. And, uh, and Jack Fisk, which is a production designer who has a, a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful, amazing work. And, and he, just a, a little example of location, I, I wanted the film to star in the, that elk hunt. And I always dreamed to have, mm -hmm. once Chiwa and I, the photographer, Manuel Lubezki, which is... Yeah, he did a pretty good job too. Yeah. That I have to credit to yeah. him. Yeah. You know, we were scouting and once we saw a little water spot with some trees, and, but it was small. Yeah. And obviously, you know, one of my favorite films ever is uh, Andre Rublev. So I always said I want to do between, you know, uh, a, Tarkovsky, a Tarkovsky kind of thing and, and, and Der Susala and, and, you know, all these films that really has a, a Herzogian kind of thing. And I, I need this kind of thing. So I saw that, but it was not enough water and it was not so magnificent to start the film. And I want a magnificent scenery to start the film, but I want, mm -hmm. I suddenly got intoxicated by that view of the water and that in, a, in the Tarkovsky way, world. But we didn't find it. And, and we, I, we sent several scouters and that didn't exist. And that was too little, it was too pedestrian and I was very depressed. And two, two, one month before we start shooting, Jack Fish took his car by himself yeah. one Sunday and he felt that something, he stopped his car, went down in the trees, which is very dangerous, by mm -hmm. the way. There's a lot of grizzly bears, by the way. So, I mean, it's not a joke. And he went by himself, and he got to this place where it was not a river. It was an accident that happened. That a river got deviated by some rocks and things that fall from a cliff. Mm -hmm. They put the water in the wrong thing, and then they did that natural thing. And when he took me, I almost cried, mm -hmm. said, you read most, I mean, it exactly what mm -hmm, we, it was mm -hmm. almost impossible to find that in, in Calgary. Yeah. And he found that. And so anyway, every, every different locations became an obsession for all of us. And uh, we were very, I mean, we were treating them as temples, as a religious experience. And all of them were choosing very delicately. And, but it was uh, painfully <laughs> the process, you know, but it yeah. was like that. 
And what, what did the, the, the effect of the production on the actors, I would imagine, really affected the nature of their performances and how they, how they, how they worked? It was very effective in that sense. Not not fun, but but but, but yeah. really effective because it was again. We all have to travel two hours in the cold, 4 a.m. and then uh, all the makeup and all the wardrobe and all that. And it was freezing temperatures. We we, we were sometimes at a couple of days. We were at 40 degrees below zero, and uh, and uh, and it was really 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 difficult. Really difficult. So for but but for the actors, I think now. And always, always there was a very good camaraderie. Uh, I, 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 I spoke with Herzog before. I said, "What do you recommend me?" And the actor said, they, they "Tell them that it's in a state of mind. They should not be just complaining. It's a state of mind. The cold doesn't exist." And it's true when you suddenly access that and you broke that. I think we went into that state, and it was super uncomfortable. But for the actors, was actually very we could have never done this in comfortable or yeah. you know blue screens and all that thing i mean it could those things that you see there i i think it i hope that it reflects what what we were going through that the odyssey of making the film suddenly become kind of what these trappers went through you know and and that in a way we were feeling that and it was good in the camera was feeling good questions from the audience yeah thank you um Alejandro, I was just wondering if you could talk about the relationship between the film's you know, clear reverence for reality in your amazing locations and uh, you know, in the freezing cold and using natural light and the film's acknowledgement of the artifice of cinema you know, with the bear's breath fogging up the lens and obviously, of course, the final shot of the film. What is the question, sorry? The, I just was wondering if you could talk about the relationship between you know, your, the film's reverence for reality and the moments in the film where you acknowledge like, the artifice of it all. Mm. Well, I personally, every time I feel less and less interested as uh, if I did a lot of realism, I attempt at realism, and I'm less interested in realism now. I don't know why, maybe it's because I'm getting older and the way I perceive life is different from from, from before, I guess. And, and I think it, I wanted this film to be much more about the perception of life or through the dreams or through subconscious or the way the slices of these guys how to how to know this guy that doesn't talk one word or seven words that Leo has in the whole film? How I can get to know him through? And I wanted not to do it with flashbacks, classic. No, I wanted to do something in a in a subconscious way. And uh, so, in a way, I want the film to have that distance from realism. But sometimes, the breath was so intense in the in the cold that a couple of times, Chi and I, you know, the, the, all the shots were absolutely designed for months. We rehearse every scene that you see here. There is no improvisation. Every look, every, every, everything, it's absolutely like a, like a choreographer. That. But sometimes we found accidents as that day that we were shooting where the camera, we knew that we would start with this guy dragging and suddenly, let's say we went into the super close-up and suddenly the breath start getting into, and I said, I mean, like, suddenly that was so, such a beautiful thing that I felt it was, it was telling me something. I, I, it was not planned, but it was something that happened. And then in the editing room, I found the idea to put this with the clouds outside and make this, again, like the super realism, like you, as you said, it's an artifice. You see that there's a lens, but which I love and I didn't care. You know, it's a movie at the end, you know. <laughs> but, but suddenly there was a dialogue between that earthy, uh, breathy, real thing with 
with something that he's going with what's happening in him. So all the time was that, or these drops of snow uh, fall into the lens, or or blood, or things like that. I love those accidents because honestly, that's how I want the people to feel that it, this is to to get there. You know, so I didn't care about that. I didn't want to be a clean film. I want to be very raw and 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 submerge the audiences through that. So those spots I really like it in that sense. You know what I mean? Not take it to I don't know, to be more caramel or <laughs> raw in that, in a good way. It was, it was not planned. Cool. Hi, Alejandro. I'm Pedro from Chile. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the performances. How much of it, because you say everything was sort of choreographed and planned, you said, you mentioned every look even. Mm -hmm. So how much of, of what we see Tom Hardy and Leo DiCaprio do, was it, came from them or came from rehearsals or came from you overseeing their characterization and the way they portrayed the savageness of their characters? Well, uh, I have to say that the, the rehearsals always inform uh, all of us. So, I mean, the rehearsal is a beautiful process in where if you have the luxury to do it, and I, I learned that from Birdman, that again was a film that was absolutely pre-designed and, and it's a craft. It's not that you, it's not a notion of it. You have a notion, then you go out and then you plant, you, 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 you put it in cameras and you, you start. And she and I literally, in a way, it's like, it's like to be storyboard the whole thing. So first with stunts or with even standings, we were just planning. And for me, it was very important to understand the point of view of the camera, where, where I want the audience to be going through and we, from which point of view, how I want them to feel it. From, from the bear attack to, to everything. I, I want the audience to really experience. So that's the most difficult question. So I found, because I knew that I had, I wanted to shoot in long takes, many of them, uh, to, to get the sense of, to submerge the people in a 360 emotional kind of uh, experience uh, and submerge them emotionally there. So to design that and knowing that I will have only one hour, one hour and a half every day to shoot the scene, I didn't have, I didn't want to, to do it in an academic way, the, the coverage and over the shoulders and thing, I, did, I was not interested in that. So I knew that I have one shot a day or three shots a day. So I need to know exactly what we will be doing because the ro light run very fast in that time. So basically, with the, once I have the idea, then I bring the actors. And the actors obviously bring ideas and, and the execution. So it's much more difficult, I have to say, because they are restricted, they were limited, they knew that I want to shoot it that way. They were excited about the challenge because sometimes actors can improvise and you find a lot and you shoot several shots in, during the whole day and the close-ups and this and that. And then in the editing room you discover that's a little more easier. It's, it's a nightmare, but it's, it's, you, have more, you have more choices. Here we knew that we were editing the film in that moment, that will be forever. So during the rehearsal there was deep discussion, they bring ideas. And in those limits, they were working their own way to execute it correctly. And I have to say that what I have found out about this technique is a beauty that it's hard to, to get in another ones because you have the benefit of the rehearsal and the precision and you know what you will do, which is you have the craft in a way control, but actually when you shoot it, everything, something goes wrong that day, always. And the adrenaline of knowing that, okay, now we are ready. After months of being rehearsing, now we're going to show, we're going to shoot, we're going to perform live 
for only one time and it will be recorded for all. So it's kind of a theater play that you rehearse one scene forever and you will be in front of the people because it's very, it's ner it's not, it's very difficult because it's very nervous. Even when you know exactly what to do, you know that you have to do it your best. So there's a combination between craft and an understanding of the cinematic grammar and everything which you have the advantage to have already proved, but you never lost the, the fear and the, the, the honesty of the moment because you are super aware, everybody's aware, everybody's uh, 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 participating. So that combination in a way gets something that I'm liking it, you know, I'm liking it because, uh, so the actors bring life, it's super difficult. They are really, you know, uh, balancing in a very fine line and, and they have to make it uh, true in that limited space. And I think they love it, they love it. It's much more challenging. I have two little questions. I have to ask you all about the bear sequence. Um, how you choreographed it, how you knew what a bear would do when mauling a person, and that sort of thing. And then I wanted to know, did Leonardo DiCaprio actually know what he was getting into when he signed up for the film? I think, no, he was drunk. I, I bring my cartel guys, we have a party. He said yes, and then <laughs> signed the contract. Chapo Guzman was happy, and then bye-bye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that, uh, no, I was saying, I was in Kent that this was a film that is a, is a product of an irresponsible enthusiasm. You know, we, 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 we knew what we were going through, but never in that scale, never. And we set the standards very high, and once you are there, this, this was like, like to be, you know, scrapping the wall, and then you, there's no way down. You, you have to go up. And then we, when we were in the middle like that, we said, oh, my God, we have to go up. And we, we couldn't change because, and I have to, I have to really credit uh, Mary for, for the support and all that because production-wise, and the, you know, the, the support was incredible. We, we, we did exactly what we have to do. We could have done it, things differently to make it more comfortable, but we didn't. But to answer the question of the bear, it was an amazing train bear, beautiful, from the Union of Canada bears, actors. No, no. <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> no, it, it's, it, it, you know, I have to say something. I think this scene, honestly, I feel very proud because it was one of those things that I said, I want to do probable improbable. I think it's improbable that we will see somebody being attacked by a bear. But it's something that you have heard and, and it's, it's terrifying and happens every year. So uh, I wanted to do it as real as possible, as a document possible. Even I, I spoke with, with Berner about what he heard in his documentary. And I interview a guy in, in Montana that interviewed 125 guys that has been or attacked or survived one guy, one guy that lived, you know. So every element that you see there is, is how it, it's how it happened. So we choreographed for months, I will say, or one month and something, to understand how this happened, how to be shot in one single take, to, to not be the trick thing or the, ah, no, but like really the animal without any emotion, he's just feeding the cops and, and to move Leo. And so it was very tricky. Technically, we use every trick possible. And I want the people, you know, I think it's an unprecedented thing that people to live and witness. But if I explain you how I did it, I will ruin your experience forever and I will screw everybody that will see it. So I prefer that you keep the illusion of the magic of cinema to keep this moment as a cinematic moment. Speaking of the magic of cinema, that's where we'll leave it in it. Really, thank you, Alejandro. Thank you, Mary. Mark, thank you. Thank you very much, guys. Straight Outta Compton tells the era-defining story of NWA, 
the California hip hop group that launched the careers of Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, and Eazy-E. The film was a massive hit, both critically and commercially, over the summer. For Rolling Stone, Peter Travers described it as an electrifying piece of hip hop history that speaks urgently to right now. And in Variety, Scott Foundas called it a sprawling, exhilarating Los Angeles hip hop epic. At the Q&A following our special screening earlier this month, we welcomed director F. Gary Gray, O'Shea Jackson Jr., who portrayed Ice Cube in the film, and Ice Cube himself, who served as producer. Let's go now to their conversation. Thank you, guys, first of all. Thank you for having thank us. you, guys. It's, uh, it's special for us to have you on stage here at the Film Society, so thank you for taking time. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming out. You know, it's... Tuesday night, you know, so <laughs> I know, you know, if people got shit to do. So we really appreciate you guys coming out and, uh, you know, spending a few few minutes with us. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask a few questions and shortly the audience is going to ask some questions. So get your questions ready. Um, well, let me we're going to talk about the movie, of course, but let me just set the stage. Um, let me start with Ice Cube. Um, tell us about the first time you met Eric. Tell us about the first time you met Easy E. Do you remember that experience of what you guys, how you guys connected, why you connected? Uh, yeah, you know, it was it was real simple. Um, Lonzo used to have this spot, you know, you see in the movie where we we go hang out and do beats and hang out, and then one day, you know, this dude came over, dressed real fly for the time, you know, he was in his Fila BJ sweatsuit. <laughs> you know, he had his nugget rings and nuggets used to be the shit in the 80s. <laughs> so <laughs> he was just real cool. You know, I just knew this dude was just on a whole nother level, you know, financially for sure. You yeah. know, he was definitely above our pay grade, uh, but he was, real interested in what we were doing and was interested in trying to get involved. And, you know, he had bought so many records, you know, he's like, he used to just go buy, you know, 25, 30, you know, singles, albums, everything, you know, he just was into music. So he started coming around more and more and more and more. And, uh, you know, pretty soon, you know, he was just part of the crew kind of like, you know, pretty much in the background, hanging, you know, and then, you know, he jumped out one day and said, yo, you know, I guess him and Dre, you know, conjured up this this idea of of Ruthless Records, and, um, and it all started from there. It's interesting in watching a movie like this because um, three of us are about the same age, almost exactly, and uh, <laughs> not... Not you, sorry, O'Shea. But what I was going to say is that it, the, the movie takes me back to a specific moment. Um, you capture it through not only, and I grew up in, in Southern California, um, not only in the way that it's shot, but the way that what we hear going on, the music, um, and the wonderful contrast between what we hear in Compton and then what we hear uh, when, when we are on the school bus at high school. Um, <laughs> tears for fears. Um, that's a striking contrast for anybody who grew up in Southern California at that time and who took the bus to high school as well, um, like me. Um, it, 
I have to ask all of you guys, but I guess maybe starting with Ice Cube and F. Gary Gray, the idea of going back and telling this story, the idea of looking back on this time period um, gives you the opportunity to tell a story, tell this history, but also to kind of reconnect with it, grapple with it, um, come to terms with it, maybe? I don't know. I mean, how, how did you think about that? I, I always looked at it as a teaching moment, you know. Um, and I, I look, we looked at this as a slice of American history, just like you would look at any period piece. Uh, you would try to, you know, pay attention to details and make sure people feel it, you know. Um, the people who were there, of course, are going to be nostalgic about it, but the the new fans, you know, uh, they get a chance to to feel exactly what we felt at that time. Uh, and we tried to recapture it on film, and, you know, Gary did a great job uh, at paying attention to detail mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and making, you know, the hood look and feel like it felt in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, that's what it had to feel like. It couldn't feel like, you know, 2016 or 2015 uh, definitely can't feel like 2016. <laughs> That's right. We ain't there yet, but but um, <laughs> but you know, so it had to feel right, uh, and you know, we we did everything in our power to make sure it felt exactly like the times. Tell us about creating the world, recreating the world, the detail, trying to find the authenticity of what it looked and felt like. I mean, well, that was the key. It was just authenticity. You know, I was a huge, still am an NWA fan, huge Ice Cube fan. Um, I grew up a few miles away from Cube. We're the same age. I grew up in South Central LA. And so that was uh, just as much a part of my experience as it was his. You know, what they wrote about, I either experienced or witnessed it as well. So <clears throat> in making the film, um, I was very close to it because it was kind of telling my story as well. Um, indirectly and um, like Cube said it's like it's a slice of American popular culture and um, I'm, you know when you're a filmmaker you're a world builder I'm sure you guys all know this and you know when I did the Italian job you know you you, you kind of go into this world of fiction you get to get to create whatever you want um, with these different movies and um, <clears throat> with this one I got a chance to kind of put on a different hat so it's almost like kind of a historian and a journalist hat and when you watch uh, the social network, you know, it's kind of what <clears throat> popular culture was in the 2000s and um, American graffiti, what American popular culture is in the you know, 50s and 60s and um, Saturday Night Fever, there's things like that. And so, you know, looking at what was happening in the 80s, um, I wanted to make sure it wasn't just a, a rap movie. It was really, really important what they did, the courage that they had. And um, some, it's missed, you know, kind of, some people miss what they did and really didn't understand the impact um, above and beyond kind of the entertainment. And it was really, really important. And um, it was important to kind of capture it that way. It's also a terrific LA movie, I think. And not only in the way that it depicts LA, but also capturing the LA of that moment, like yeah. the Daryl yeah. Gates LA, you know, that late 80s um, yeah. moment that's so relevant today. Um, the movie is so resonant, sadly, in certain ways, and still so relevant today. What what we're looking at with um, the depiction of police brutality, 
uh, in particular. And um, you couldn't have imagined when you guys decided to make this movie that it would be so painfully relevant today. No, not at all. I mean, I applaud Cube um, just, you know, to have the courage as a teenager to step up and say what we were feeling, you know. Um, a lot of us as, uh, you know, just black people in general, but especially young black men uh, have stories, experiences with law enforcement. And for him to kind of stand up in, in the face of opposition with all the controversy to say what he said, um, and he got a lot of flack from it. And, you know, it is unfortunate that we're watching this movie and it's not one of those things where we have a conversation and we say, oh, wow, remember back in the day when that used to happen? It's like we decided to integrate a lot of that stuff years and years and years ago when I started on this picture in 2011. And so the Ferguson stuff and the Baltimore stuff and all this stuff hadn't happened, you know, and... Um, it's unfortunate that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And as Q put it, this has been going on for like 400 years. It didn't just start. Um, but I applaud him. You know, you look at Marvin Gaye, he made the song, Made Me Wanna Holler, and he had that line where he says, don't punish me with brutality. And he's talking about cops in the 70s. Q was a little less diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> What is, what is artistic expression? Um, but I'll, I'll also, <laughs> I'll also say that um, I'm optimistic because um, the fact that what's going on is, is in the headlines a lot nowadays in the camera phones and the body cams and the dash cams. And um, I think a lot of pressure is being put on our political leaders and our leaders in law enforcement. I think change is coming. Are you optimistic, Cube? Do you agree with um, you know, a little bit, you know, I am, you know, not a lot, but a little bit. Um, I know the authorities like to hold on to their power and um, they're taught to win any situation they get into. So, you know, um, to win, somebody has to lose. Um, but the body cams, the cell phones, people being vigilant, filming these things are starting to bring a public shame that is starting to provoke change. Um, nobody wants to be up on CNN, you know, shooting a kid in the back, I hope. So, you know, hopefully these things are deterrents, uh, but, you know, things happen fast on the streets. And we're not trying to discourage the good cops that's out there in the world. You know, we need them. You know, what we want them to do is to point out the bad seeds, get them off the force, and, um, and let's, you know, as far as the police, you know, get your dignity back. You know what I mean? Get your respect from the community back by doing the right thing and, uh, you know, not abusing people just because you can. Uh, so. You know, we got a lot of work to do as citizens to put pressure on on these authorities to do the right thing by the people. Um, and we keep doing that, and we'll, we'll, we'll get the change we're looking for. Let me switch gears a little bit, um, bring in O'Shea Jackson, Jr. Tell me about... <laughs> Great job. Congratulations. I'm really overrated. <laughs> 
tell me about the first conversation you had with either of these guys about uh, that led to you playing your dad. When did that? Who, who brought it up first? And tell us about that conversation. Oh, by far him. Really? You know, um, I was uh, having a regular old Shay day. You know, and uh, he comes down and he he tells me that. <laughs> They starting to uh, they starting to take the NWA movie seriously. We, we didn't even know it was straight out of Compton yet. Uh, it's the NWA movie, and uh, I need you to play me. And you know that's a that's a big fish. You know it's Universal. It's uh, I never acted before, never uh, never been on screen. Phenomenal, before. right, guys? First role. But but the director knew that. So from there, uh, Gary gave me the tools that I needed to get as much experience as I could in a short amount of time. Uh, he connected me to Aaron Spicer, who's Will Smith's acting coach, Gerard Butler, uh, the rock beast. And then uh, there's uh, Susan Batson, who's actually out here in New York, uh, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. And, and those two, you know, the, I owe them everything. If you, if you have the work in front of you, and you just put it to your mind, you know, you can, you can have something like this. And, but you, and, you got to back up for two seconds. No, I'm going to back up back for three up, seconds. Back up. Hold on. Back up. When I, first told, when I first told this idea to Gary, he looked at me and said, man, what kind of movie are we trying to make? <laughs> That's true. I said, it's not going to be bullshit. He's going to be right. He's going to be ready. You know what I mean? Just, just, just give him what he need. And, uh, but but you but did. Back it up you, even did more, you did raise that eyebrow on me a little bit. I did. Bit. I'm not gonna even front. I, I I did. Now, I started my career with Cube. I did. Today was a good day. The music video and my first film was Friday. The very first Friday with Chris Tucker. And so that was the beginning of my career. This is 20 years ago. So you know we cool. <laughs> but when he said you know I want my son to play the role, I'm like. We ain't that cool, not yet. Like, <laughs> no, we cool, but you know, it's a process, and um, that's what that, that's what the eyebrow raising was. You know, uh, Cube knows that. Um, you know, I kill myself when I get behind the camera, and um, you know, what he didn't do was say you have to use my son. What he says is, you know, what do you think? You know, I think he'd be good, and um, it was never um, mandated. And so the reason why I say back up is because when he says that he interacted with acting coaches and things like that, it was only during the audition process. It took him two years to get this role. He auditioned for two years, callbacks, chemistry tests, things like that. And so um, it was never a shoe in because, as I explained um, to everyone who found out that he was in the running, that the novelty of Shay being Cube's son wears off after the fi first five minutes of the movie. And then after that, you have to carry a movie. Now, there are good character actors that can do good parts here and there, but if, there's a different element inside a performer that allows you or affords you the, the ability to actually carry an entire movie. And, you can't, and nepotism doesn't um, serve that. And so... Um, when he came to me, I was a little nervous at first, but I said, I will work with you. And in the meantime, I'm going to audition 2,000 other people. <laughs> Passing out 2,000 L's. That's all that is. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, but it, that... 
putting me through the ringer, that's, you know, that's exactly what I needed. I'd do it again. I, Straight Outta Compton is something I've never sacrificed so much for a, a film. I lost 15 pounds in like three weeks. Um, just to be able to, to be snowed in out here in New York during February to be with an acting coach, you know, I, I've had the time of my life uh, getting my ass beat, Gary. Thank you. <laughs> well, he worked for it. I mean, and, that, and that's kind of the moral of the story. Um, you know, you know, obviously he, he knew someone and uh, well, <laughs> he knew someone. ultimately, you know, it comes down to, you know, he was just the best man for the job. You know, when when you really break it down, he was just the best guy for the job. Right. Um, you know, I've been I've been producing movies uh, since Friday, which is 1995. So I could have put this dude in a movie a long time ago. But when you write, you write. And I knew we wouldn't find anyone better to to do the part. And, you know, just as a producer, I knew that, you know, the kid could do it. Um, and he just had to bring himself up as an actor and and work very hard and do everything this man said. And I wasn't going to interfere with that at all. And I was like, yo, you know, you got to deal with Gary now. <laughs> you know, you got the job now. You got to deal with the director. And uh, I'm proud of him because he did everything we asked him to do, you know, with a smile on his face. With and, a smile, that's right. And, um, you know, with a great attitude. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of my son for stepping up and uh, doing a, a great job on a project that meant so much to me. That's yours. That's your water. There's another one over here. Don't give yeah, them I still got to take no, care of that. No, that's yours. <laughs> okay. But just to follow up, O'Shea, that you must have gotten some notes from your dad on the set. I mean, you're playing him. Uh, it, what kind of notes did he give you in, in the moment? We would talk every day um, just so he could give me ammunition as, a, as an actor of what he's thinking about during, you know, during that time. You know, it, it, was, it was before he got to the set. The one thing that Cube has always been respectful of, because he's not only a, a writer, producer, but he's a director himself. So he never came in on a set and, and directed his son. You know, he gave no, him no. a lot of input, and I'll let you describe what the process was, but... You know, one thing that I know we have is uh, creative uh, chemistry. We've been doing it since music videos and with Friday and things like that. And so he was always respectful of what it took, but he definitely gave him. Yeah, you know, well, once the, you know, once I clock in, you know, I'm all Gary's, you know, but uh, just our phone conversations and, and discussing scenes before we even got to shoot them. And uh, uh, one thing that I remember him telling me is, uh, is, is something that bugged me during the audition process. There are many fans of Ice Cube. Everybody knows Ice Cube's signature, you know, frowning. And so he, uh, he wanted me to make sure he wasn't frowning in every scene because, you know, like somebody could just mean mug for two and a half hours and feel like they did it. And that's not the man I know. You know, I wanted to show my father's wit. I wanted to show that he's always thinking. Uh, I wanted to show uh, how you got to be on your toes around him. You know, you get your jabs in. And, uh, of course, eventually that anger in the office. <laughs> Ice Cube? Hey, it's nothing I can say. He, uh, <laughs> you know, 
I definitely told him everything, you know, that I was thinking, what I was thinking of everybody, you know, what I thought of Dre, what I thought of Easy, what I thought of Ren, you know, so he can have those things, you know, just as ammunition, as things he can always go to. Yeah. Uh, if he wanted to, to you know, throw in an ad lib, I wanted him to know why, where, and, you know, how to go about it. But it was really all about just giving him that ammunition. But when he when he got to the set, you know, I I rarely spoke to him about it. You know, it was all about just, you know, he was in good hands. And, and uh, so I just knew if he did what Gary wanted him to do, that we'd have a great movie. So, you know, uh, I hate them. Them fathers that coach from the sidelines, you know, like they, they, you got your kids in sports and you're on the sideline saying, no, you know, do what I say. And, you know, so I didn't want to be that guy. You know, I wanted to be like, yo, you're in the coach's hands. Don't come over here looking at me, crying to me about nothing. <laughs> Just do it. And uh, he got down. I'm and proud of him. he did it. it. You know, one of the biggest uh, advantages that I had was, um, a, a relationship with Cube and also with Dre and those details um, that they can not only give me but give the actors you know that was one of the big benefits of just not having to guess you know I'm not relying on Wikipedia I'm not relying on Google I'm not <laughs> you know I have uh, you know um, most of the surviving members they're giving input and it really helped with the details the authenticity you had the source absolutely we're going to go to the audience. One more question for Ice Cube. Did this movie, to what, to what extent did this movie give you a sense of closure, being able to revisit? And you, you mentioned like you could give him guidance or, or input on your relationship to Easy e at this particular moment or Dre at this particular moment. Does that, was that a sense of closure for you? Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't feel like, like closure. I just feel like it's a great accomplishment, you know, and uh, I know... Eric would be proud of this movie, uh, and he's the only one that really couldn't put his stamp on it. But you know his, you know his, his flavor is all over this movie, uh, and so you know we just wanted to show the world what we went through to be who we are, uh, and we we felt like this was an American story of brotherhood, of of rags to riches, of breakup to makeup. Uh, you know, First Amendment rights, um, you know, it had everything from, you know, gang banging to drug dealing to police brutality to HIV and AIDS. So we just knew we had uh, an American story here that needed to be told. O'Shea, do you look at what, you, what your dad accomplished or achieved at this point in his life differently now because of this movie? Or how do you look at it differently um, because you saw it, you saw and have heard about, I'm sure, his life from the inside. But now, not only to play this role, but to be able to look at this whole time period, how did it? What kind of perspective did it give you that was different from what you had heard? Well, my my whole goal with this film is for people to appreciate my father at least somewhat close to how I do. You know it. It was it was such a, a an importance to me to get this story out there and for it to be me to cement it. Uh, the one thing I took from the film though is that confidence in himself, you know, and, and his intelligence and his integrity were displayed at you know seventeen. You know, he's been that guy that I've known 
forever. And I love that I'm able to be a part of this film and, and to share with the world the, the man I know. Great. Um, let's take some questions from the audience. There's a microphone. So let's go right here to the third row on the side. Wait for the mic and then... How you doing, guys? Great job. It's my second time seeing it. Love Thank it. you. Thank uh, you. Question is for Ice Cube. I was just wondering uh, if you could expand a little on how close NWA was to a reunion uh, or to getting back together and if, if, you, if there's more to the story than we saw in the film in that respect. Well, you know, we, we talked about it and, um, you know, just like in the movie, I told him that he had a lot of work to do with Dre because him and Dre was really at it at the time. Uh, so he said that, you know, he was going to talk to Dre. And so I was looking for a phone call of, you know, Dre's down. Let's let's talk about it. Let's have a meeting. Let's show up at the studio. Let's let's start seeing what we can put together. So but the next call I ended up getting was that he he was sick and he was in the hospital. So it just uh, it really stopped everything in his tracks. And. You know, so I think that's more of a question for Dre. Uh, he he would have been the one producing the music. So, you know, as close as he was is as close as we were to doing it. Hi, it's my um, third time seeing the movie. I love it. Thank, um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> got a lot of money for me. Um, <laughs> uh, this question is for Ice Cube. As a writer for both music and film, did you ever struggle with doubting yourself? or disciplining yourself, and if you did, how did you overcome that? And if you didn't, what advice would you give someone who does that? I mean, who is struggling with that? Well, you know, of course, you know, I'm human like everybody else, so doubt definitely, you know, tries to creep in, um, but you gotta shut the door on it. And as a writer, you really have to allow yourself the time to rejuvenate. You know, sometimes you want to sit down and write it all at the same time, but sometimes you need days off. You need weeks off uh, before you go back at it, and you go back at it with a fresh attitude, a fresh feeling. So, you know, never be discouraged by what they call writer's block, because it's not. It's just you retooling and, and you know, kind of, you know, refueling uh, your skills to be able to continue on writing. So, you know, I used to get nervous, you know, when I get writer's block, because I'm like, man, I'm working on a record. I need to I need to finish this, you know, but but then I just started to let it flow and let things happen as they as they naturally would. And, you know, everything comes out better. Uh, so uh, that's that's how I that's how I push away doubt. You know, sometimes I push the project back, take a step back, a couple of days off, and then go back at it. Um, I went to USC for screenwriting. That was what I did before I got into acting. And um, with writer's block is, is something that we all dealt with. You know, you hear just quiet on the dorm floor because everybody's trying to think. And uh, some of the things that would help us is the people around you sometimes can bring a, a type of creative energy and your brain is a muscle. If you overuse it, you know, you'll burn yourself out. So it's just about finding a, finding, finding a, a place of peace, you know, without any clutter, without you just relaxing in a, a creative mindset. Yes, all the way back there. 
Hi, couple things. Um, I just wanted to say, as a hip hop head, old school, yeah, yeah. the movie was amazing. It Thank did hip hop justice, appreciate it. Appreciate you guys for that. And I also want to say, also to Ice Cube, I want to say America's Most Wanted is one of my favorite albums ever in life. Classic, classic. Amazing. I, I still know all the words um, <laughs> to every song. So really my question is for actually Mr. O'Shea Jackson Jr. I'd like to know, what is your favorite album of your father's? Oh. <laughs> all right, all right. This is like broken into pieces. When I was a little, when I was younger, it was the, the War and Peace album, the War edition. I, I was all over that. But as I got older and, and I, you know, I started to grow into my own, there's Death Certificate. Like, Death Certificate is that one. Or Laugh Now, Cry Later is, is another one. You know, and of course that Ice Cube's greatest hits. But you know, it's, uh, I would have to pick Death Certificate for sure. Okay, we're gonna go there, Yo. there and then up here. Yes. What's up, what's up? Uh, first off, F. Gary Gray, my homie Trey wanted me to tell you that he loves Set It Off. And I'm the second that Thank Set you. It Off is super underrated. Yeah. Just wanted to say that. For sure. Thank you. Appreciate um, that. This question is actually for all three of y'all. First off, I'm the second with Homegirl up there said, like, as a hip hop head, like, seeing DOC prominently, seeing, like, all the little stuff, like, it made me really, like, be like, oh, they care. F. Gary Gray, like, he really cares. Like, Ice Cube really cares. I mean, of course you care, but, like, for real. Um, so my question is for all three Thank of y'all. What's one hip-hop biopic that you would like to see made and not even have a part in it in, cre in the creation process, but as a fan that you'd love to watch? <laughs> okay, we got Wu-Tang in the house. Man, I would love to see Tupac. I mean, I would love to see the started Sugar Hill Records, you know, I think that's, you know, the story that needs to be told is the, is the start of uh, Sugar Hill Records and Sylvia Robinson and, you know, that's the story that needs to be told because that is the actual beginning of, you know, taking it from the streets and making it a part of entertainment, so, you know, that's a big story. Run DMC, you know, I mean, Crush Groove was cool, but damn! I want to see, you know what I mean, a dramatic look at it. So, Public Enemy, uh, I can go on and on. You know, I, I love a lot of old school hip hop. Uh, he mentioned a lot that, you know, a lot of groups that I like a lot as well. But, you know, they don't focus a lot on the South. And with all this drama going on with Lil Wayne, I actually wouldn't mind <laughs> seeing what's behind all this stuff that's going on with those guys down there. It's been going on for maybe 20 years or so as well. So it'd be interesting to see something a little different because we, you know, obviously we got the West Coast, we have the East Coast, but I wouldn't mind seeing something from the South. Two Live Crew. <laughs> I want to see the Two Live Crew movie. Pornhub. Hey, hey. They went through a lot of legal trouble. It could be a dramatic movie, Gary. Two Live Crew. Wu-Tang. <laughs> Okay, we don't have a lot more time, but there's a guy here, and then there's a woman with her hand up back there. So we'll go here first, and then back. Okay, uh, this question is for uh, O'Shea Jackson and Ice Cube, too. Um, first of all, let me just shout you out. Uh, Pinnacle ones are amazing, like, like that babe, too. Well, <laughs> I just wanted to ask, where do you get your sense of style from, and what is your favorite brand? These are good questions. Levi's and Dickies for me, you know, I, <laughs> like stop. I keep it simple. Yeah, I just just be comfortable. You know, I don't like nothing too tight. 
Uh, you know, I'm a sneakerhead for sure. Uh, I got the pinnacles on, if you don't know what these is. And um, I, I would have to do with, uh, you know, it's, it's my favorite brand got to be like like Louis Vuitton or like, you know, you know, like, like Gucci or something. <laughs> but, or uh, Bathing Ape. Bathing Ape has always been something I've always stuck with. Some of the simpler stuff, nothing too cartoony. And uh, yeah, you'll see me in it. Like that answer? Back there, yes. Hi, my name is Nia. This question is for Ice Cube. I hope you don't shut me down like you did the journalist in the movie, because I'm also a journalist. But what's your name, man? Where'd you go? Thank you. I think, uh, uh, to the director's credit, the movie did a really good job of depicting the thick line between black and white that was felt in Compton and other uh, urban communities around the country. So I wanted to know, decades later, uh, how does your view with regards, not just, just Jewish people, but white people in general, how has your view of them and their relationship with black people in this country evolved since you started uh, NWA? Well, you know, it's a thing where I realized that Every race and nationality has crazy people in it. So, <laughs> you know, so, you know, in that respect, we all the same. Um, you know, there's some systematic things that probably need to change, but, you know, really, we all the same. And, and the sooner we'll realize that, the better off we'll be. Uh, that we all want the same things. We all want, you know, cherish the same, uh, mostly the same values when it comes to family and home and life and, you know, uh, so people are the same, you know, and, and it's these, you know, differences that the world has um, pointed out with us that we latch on to, run with, and fight each other over. and. They're really all in our head, you know, all these lines and barriers and things are really deep rooted in our head and um, we should get over it and uh, work together and, you know, enjoy each other instead of worrying about trying to be the same. Who the hell wants to all be the same? Nobody wants that, you know, so our differences is what makes this world great and that's what we need to focus on. And that, and that was one of the main reasons why I did the movie is because, you know, um, on the surface, people could just kind of focus on the music and focus on the controversy and the genre of music with gangster rap and things like that. But um, when you see an artist um, and, and um, evolve and you see, you know, the humanity behind the rap, the rappers and the, the music and the albums and the icons, they're human beings that evolved. And over the course of 25, 30 years or so, you see them kind of grow up. And um, what I wanted to make sure, and what we all wanted to make sure, is people were inspired. And so it's an inspiration to see these guys come out of South Central, it was very, very dangerous, Compton, very dangerous, very negative in a lot of ways, in a lot of, in a lot of places, and evolve and do something positive. This man's been married for over 20 something years. He's got a great family. Dre's been married for 20 years. He's got a great family. And so, you know, to focus on what they were doing and saying when they were teenagers versus how they evolved as human beings and great examples. Um, I love CNN. I love showing that. And to, you know, even hear the answer about, listen, we all the same. 
you know, you can learn from that, you know, and that was part of the point of the movie. So unfortunately, we're out of time, so we're going to do this. Um, we have to let these guys get on uh, on their way, so uh, we're going to give them a big applause and then let them get, uh, so stay in, your, stay in your seats for me, let, give them a big applause and let them get backstage. Thank you guys so much for doing this tonight. Thank, thank you for coming thank out, you. spending Appreciate the night the with us. Thank you guys, thank you, thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>